um, I wanted to address a matter from last week's sermon. Because after my sermon was over, a couple of brothers came up to me concerning verse 38. So you remember verse 38 of chapter 2? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, and that's what we're going to be looking at, that word for, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They proffered the idea that the word for should be possibly translated because of, because of the remission of sins. And uh, I told them I'd look into that. I had never read any scholar to proffer that idea, and I did have three semesters of Greek, which is sadly far more than most ministers ever have. And I would have had more, but there weren't enough students wanting to take the fourth-level Greek, so the university canceled the class. I just find it astounding that people who are going to be ministers aren't required to take the original languages, at least have a cursory understanding of them, We never were able to have a Hebrew class at the university I went to because there were never enough students to justify having the class. And the classes they did have on Greek, um, the first one started out with about 30 students and ended with like 12. Everybody else dropped out. And then the next two after that, the second and third level, we had like seven or eight people in the class. And I don't know, Jason, is there even a... um, is that when you get your master's, is any Greek required for guys going into the ministry? How much do they have to take? Two semesters of each. They do not. I agree with you on that. It's a huge problem. So I've actually had more Greek than um, people with the master's do who are only required to take two, because I guarantee you that people take the bare minimum. <laughs> like the university I went to just for a Bachelor of Science, um, it was totally voluntary. You didn't have to take any Greek. You didn't have to take any Hebrew. And these are people going into the ministry. Um, so I, th- I found that odd. So anyways, so the word translated for here in chapter 2, verse 38, is the Greek word ice. And I've talked about this word before regarding the matter of eisegesis. Remember that? How we should not read something into Scripture when interpreting it. And the reason we use ice is because the word ice most routinely means in or into. In or into. The word is used in the New Testament over 1,700 times. And most often is translated in or into. Often, however, it is translated for. Very often it's translated for. Which is the correct rendering here in the context of Acts 2.38. I did find a couple scholars who said because of can be a remote meaning of ice. The rub is, however, it is never translated that way in the New Testament. Ever. Anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, for example, our verse in question here, I didn't find a single translation that translated it because of the remission of sins. So it should be rendered for. Moreover, moreover, if you're still with me, what is that guy babbling about up there? Moreover, ice is a preposition. 
Okay? And the word regularly translated because in the Greek is the word epi, and it's a conjunction. So there are two different uses of grammar. So, yeah, the proper rendering is for, or you could say so that, um, something like that. So if you find anything to contradict that, please let me know and I will ice it. Get it? I'll look into it, into it. I'll look into it, all right? So that's why I wasn't a comedian. Although I did get voted class clown in the fifth grade. So I can be foolish and goofy. It just becomes harder the older you get, it seems like. Um, So why don't we stand up for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. And then we'll go through chapter 3 here, which um, is a short chapter, actually. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you for this time in your scripture this morning. We ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds. And Lord, like the apostles and disciples of old, that we would be your witnesses in the earth, that we would make you known to men. Lord, I ask and pray that you guide this sermon, use it for good, fill me with the words to declare, and rally the hearts of your people in service to you because of it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So it begins here, and they're headed to the temple. Uh, You may recall in chapter 2, I had already made clear from our last sermon that these Jewish believers in Christ continued to go to temple. Okay? They continued to go to temple. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 46. Um, Pardon me, chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They did not throw off all of their Jewish roots. In fact, much of their Jewish roots was fulfilled in Christ. They were pictures of the coming Messiah who they now knew. So they didn't see need to just throw off all of their Jewishness. Um, They continued on in the temple They viewed themselves as part of the people of God, and they wanted to make Christ known to their people, to the Jewish people. The disciples and the apostles wanted to do that. And here they are going to temple. It's about the ninth hour. Anybody know what time that is? It's three in the afternoon. Okay, So they gather together at three in the afternoon for prayer, a very common practice for Jews at that time. And it says in verses 2 through 7, while they're going to the temple, a certain man lame from his mother's womb, so he's been never walked his entire life, was carried, 
whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. It's very common. People who were crippled or ill or incapable of working for themselves would line up in the streets or particularly at the temple and ask, ask for alms. There was no welfare system where the state took money out of your pocket to give it to someone else's pocket. If you've ever been to Mexico, how many of you have ever been to Mexico? If you walk through Mexico City or any poor area of any town or village in Mexico, you'll find crippled people, people who are incapable of working. And um, they just sit by the side and are dependent upon people giving to them in order for them to subsist and go on. There's always someone to help them get there and always someone to help them get back. So this guy's sitting there. He's been there all his life. Anybody know how old this guy was? He's over 40. So he's been here for decades. How do we know he's over 40? Because it says so in chapter 4, I believe verse 22. So here's this guy in his 40s, been there all his life. Everybody knows who he is. He's always been there. For most of the people, he's always been there. And he sees Peter and John coming, about to go into the temple, and he asks for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And here's what Peter said. Verse 5, so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Okay? This guy was sitting there outside the temple because in Judaism, giving money to someone who is poor and crippled was viewed as a meritorious act. It would help you with your relationship with God and their thinking. People going to the temple would be more ready to give because they're thinking about eternal matters at that point. So when Peter said, look at us, he thought he was going to get money. That's what he thinks Peter's going to do. You know, here's a bunch of money. He thinks he's going to get a coin or get a bunch of bunch of money. But instead, look what Peter says. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth rise up and walk. So, this was not what the guy was expecting in any way, shape, or form. And it says in verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He was able for the first time in his life to walk. To walk. I love that oft-repeated story about Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent II. It's probably one of the few things I do like that Aquinas said. I'm not a big fan of his. Once when Pope Innocent II was counting a large sum of money, he said to Aquinas, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. You know, as Peter did here in verse 6. Aquinas responded by saying, True, Holy Father, and neither can she now say, Arise and walk. It's a great rebuke. And that's kind of where American Christianity is at, so fat on its wealth and ease. Is repentance possible? Is hunger and a desire to serve God and see Him do great things in the earth possible? all the wealth and ease.
that American Christians are drunk on. Another thing I want you to notice about verse 6 there is notice Peter invokes the name of Jesus Christ. He invokes the name of Jesus Christ in order to heal this man. Listen to me now. In Jewish culture, a name does not just identify or distinguish a person. It expresses the very nature of his being. It reveals his character, the very essence of who he is. Hence, the power of the person is available in the name of the person. Parents, we do that, right? Go tell Susie, Johnny, that I said. Invoke the name, right? Civil magistrates do this. Military officers do this, don't they? They invoke their name, their office, because there's power in the name. And there's power in Christ's name because of who he is. In fact, I put out on the table, because I've preached about this before, the importance of name, of a name within Jewish culture. So these are on the back table, naming our children. So if you've never read it, you can get it off the back table. It's also at our website. Because this is a hugely important matter. This matter of, of one's name. That it reveals all that you are. Entails your very character, your essence, your very being. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. I want you to look just at three verses here very quickly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It's talking about Jesus and it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him. Who's the Him here? Jesus. And then look what it says, And given Him the name which is above every name. The reason Jesus was given the name above every name is because he declared to us who God is. In the life that he lived, in the words that he spoke, he has revealed to us the Father. The Son has. And we see that in many places. I just want to mention a couple of them. Turn first to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken time past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then look what verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Jesus is the express image of God's person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has revealed to us who God is. That's why he's been given a name which is above every name. That's why at his name, this guy was able to get up and walk. Be healed from being lame and crippled from the time he was born. What a day for this man. The other verse I want you to look at is John chapter 1. Turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. This again is talking about Jesus. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then look what verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, talking about Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared him, or he has revealed him to us. So this is why Christ has been given a name which is above every name. 
because the very being, the very essence, the character he has revealed in the life which he lived and the words which he spoke is the Father. Understand that? So that's why he's been given a name which is above every name. Awesome stuff. And so in my little pamphlet here, those of you who have kids or want to have kids someday, in my little pamphlet here, I go on to talk about how important it is to give our kids names with meaning. You, you should want your kids' names to have important meaning, not just call them a certain name because it's cool or sounding or because it's chic at the time in our culture. You should give them a name that has purpose to it. You should seek God. Lord, what do you have for this child you've gifted us with? And when he shows you, give the child a name that encapsulates what you feel God has for that child's life. It's huge, important stuff. You really get into it, too. Me and my wife would always be looking at names. We'd be writing names down. Then we start realizing that we weren't going to have enough kids to name them all the names that we wanted to name our kids. So then we started giving them four names instead of just two, you know, or three names instead of just two. Because it's like, we like all these cool names. One name I didn't get to use was Swamp Fox. Okay? Francis Marion was the Swamp Fox. And lo and behold, and this must have been like subliminal in Crispin's mind. He didn't know it. Because he named his kid Titus Swamp Fox. And I said, oh, that's what I was going to name my next kid was Swamp Fox. Never did have another son after Matthew. So it was good I named Matthew Matthew. I would have never been able to name a kid after myself. And I honestly didn't do it for vain reasons. I really felt God wanted me to give him that name. So it was like, I never got to name a Swamp Fox. And here he names his kid Swamp Fox. So anyways, now i got a grandson named Swamp Fox. I should start peddling these names around to my kids. So the ones I didn't get as sons and daughters, I can get as grandsons and granddaughters. Amen? So a name is very important, and at the name of Jesus Christ, go back here to Acts chapter 2, this guy got up and walked, who had been lame all his life. These people had all seen him. He was like a fixture there. You can all think of that, right? Someone you remember back in your youth? I remember we would always go to church, and there was this crippled guy selling newspapers on the corner in Detroit where I grew up. So on our way to church in the morning, you'd always see him there, the crippled dude, sitting by the side with his newspapers. Most newsboys like that would get out and run up to the car. He couldn't. So people would get out, lights red, run over, get a newspaper, hand him the money. Boom. I know, kids, this is before the Internet. Okay, This is how we communicated. It was through newspapers. And um, And here, all of a sudden, this guy is healed. And we knew this was going to happen, right? Because remember chapter 2, verse 43 of Acts, it said, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Here, Luke had just mentioned that, and now here, in the very next chapter, he's giving us this great story about Peter and John going up to the temple, and this guy who's been lame since he was born and is now in his 40s, gets up and walks. Now look what goes on and says here. So he, the lame guy, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, 
walking, leaping, and praising God. So like, this wasn't like, well, he wasn't really lame, and he went through rehab for six months, and he was able to do it again. Think about it, this guy's never walked in his life, ever, and he's now walking, leaping, and praising God, right? And all the people saw him walking and praising God, verse 9. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, just like I would have known it was that guy always selling his newspapers on the corner in Detroit. Everybody knew that. It's a fixture. Four-plus decades the guy's been out there. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, so they're gathering around. That's what people do when something wild like this happens. They they gather around. What in the world has happened here? Now, as the lame man who was healed, verse 11, held on to Peter and John. He ain't letting go of them. (laughs) These guys... These guys came here, and I can walk now. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's. It's like a colonnade, Solomon's colonnade. It's like this long thing just inside the eastern wall of the temple, very long, open with a roof, but all open on the side with these big pillars that held it up. So think about this. This huge crowd gathers, because this is an amazing occurrence. The guy's holding on to Peter and John. So when Peter saw it, he didn't hand them a bottle of water with their church address on it, did he? What happened with Peter? Peter realized this was an opportunity to preach. This was an opportunity to preach. You have to understand Miracles don't win people to Christ. Faith in God's word is what wins people to Christ. The proclamation of his word and gospel is what calls men to Christ. His Holy Spirit works upon them and transforms them so that they literally become new creatures in Christ. You understand that, right? Just because a miracle takes place doesn't mean the person's going to have saving faith. Because miracles weren't designed to get people saved. They were designed to give opportunity to preach the gospel. And you see that over and over again in Holy Scripture. That's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to set up a hanky ministry because God uses you in some miraculous way like he did Peter here and John and start selling hankies and fleecing people and Winning everybody is like, oh, look at him. Look how God uses him. Isn't that awesome? I wish I was him. Can I touch him? And all that kind of stuff. In fact, Peter rebukes that thinking right at the very beginning of his sermon, doesn't he? Look what he says here. He says, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. Right? Peter says this because it's so common for people to be adulated with the person through whom a miracle takes place. It's just common. You see it in church history, you see it in contemporary history, you've probably seen it in your own life. 
where people flock after men who are used in ways where miracles do take place or pretend miracles take place. You know, there are charlatans, always have been, always will be. Read the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul was dealing with all brood of charlatans. You know, there's been ministers in our day and age over the last 50 years who've been caught wearing wires in their ears, talking to people out in the thing and acting like God's giving them a word for the person and then he's healing them. And it's all contrived baloney. They're complete charlatans. Okay? Then there are people actually used of God where actual miracle does take place. Regardless of the situation, people can tend to adulate those people. You know, praise them. Begin to worship them. And they can begin to act goofy a lot of times. You know, buy this holy water from me. Buy this holy oil from me. Buy this hanky. I blessed it from me. You know? You're all kind of looking at me like, nah, nobody does that. Are you joking me? No, it's pretty prevalent. I know I'm in Milwaukee where German people are thick. And Germans are the most... Yeah, they're just like, they don't buy into any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, they're just like, they don't get into this stuff. And um, But if you leave Milwaukee area, seriously, like go to Detroit, where I'm from, it's all over the place. Go down south, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's like, so, in some ways it's sad, the Germanness of it all. and um, But in other ways, there's a goodness to it, you know what I mean? Because it prevents this type of idiocy um, where people adulate these folk. No, all the Germans in Milwaukee, they're like looking for the wire. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> there's got to be something there. <laughs> you know, it's just, this isn't happening. This is like messed up, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, anyhow. So, anyhow. Yeah, what, you, what happened next here? Let's see. Verse 13 He goes on and he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Wow. So he makes it clear to him that God has done this through Jesus Christ. Amen? And he's not pulling any punches. He said, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And then he adds to it and says, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And he's still not done. He piles it on and says, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. This is called faithfulness to God the preaching that Peter is doing here. And we must be faithful to him in the declaration of his truth. We must declare it frankly and plainly. Notice Peter didn't embellish it. Peter didn't have to act obnoxious or anything like that. But he did declare the truth plainly and simply and was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of men. He goes on and he says, And you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. 
and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, through God, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter is using this moment of the healing of this man in the name of Jesus Christ as an opportunity to point this crowd that is gathered that's amazed by this miracle to Christ. But he has to be honest with them. He has to let them know who Christ is and how they treated him. And he's going to call them to repentance because of what they did. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Remember, we are priests of God. We are to represent God to man, as Peter did in these first few verses. We are also to represent man to God. And that's what he's doing now. I know that you did this in ignorance. He's representing man to God. I know you did this in ignorance, as did your rulers, Listen to what he says, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So he lets them know this was part of the purpose of God. This was part of the purpose of God. That's why Jesus died. It doesn't mean your wrongdoing is okay. You have to repent of that. You need to turn from your sin. But he wants them to know this was the purpose of God. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Turn with me there, please. Trying to keep my uh, computer going here. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. And look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And then look what Jesus says in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember, he was about to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Father, save me from this hour. And then look what he says. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Christ came to die, to be crucified. And that's what Peter's letting these these Jewish folk know. This was all part of the purpose of God. And what is the preaching of the gospel? That Christ was crucified. That he took upon himself the sins of men. So that if any will believe in him, God will forgive them of their sins and they can obtain right standing with God. And what verifies it all, what declares him to be the son, Romans 1.4, the resurrection. He was raised from the dead. You look at 1 Corinthians, what did Paul talk about? I preach Christ crucified, amen, and risen from the dead. And that is the message. That is why Christ came, was to die. Because God in his justice 
knew that we all deserved death for our sins because we all sinned. But God, in his mercy, sent his son to die in our place so that if we'll believe in Jesus, God will forgive us of our sin and we obtain our standing with God. And we become new creatures. This is what Peter's trying to explain to these folk. You understand that, right? Let's go back here now to Acts chapter 3. He says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. Christ has come. And verse 21 speaks of the second advent of Christ. He says, repent. Notice he said that in the first sermon too. Now, I think it's important for us to note, and let me catch up here on my um, screen, my notes, because I've totally gone off them. So I'm, I don't remember what I wrote here. But I think I said something worthwhile. Well, actually, I didn't. Um, but here's what I would have wrote. <laughs> here's what I would have wrote. We have to remember what I said last time, right? That Luke was not writing systematic theology here, nor was Peter preaching a systematic sermon, a systematic theology sermon. Also, you have to understand, Luke is just picking out highlights of Peter's sermon. He's not giving us all the details. So like in the first sermon where he didn't mention about how they did it in ignorance, he may have. Okay? Because the account isn't meant to be every single detail. You have to understand that. And so here we have, but here we have repent mentioned in the first sermon and mentioned here in the second sermon. That's because repentance is massively huge. A person needs to turn from their sin. And I mentioned this last week. You don't just wake up in the morning and decide, hey, I think I'll turn from my sin and believe in Jesus today. No, it doesn't happen that way. God begins to work in the heart of a man. And as he does, a man turns from his sin or he hardens his heart and resists what God is doing and rejects the message of the gospel. Understand? But repentance is needed and necessary. We repent, we turn from our sin. And listen to me now, the level to which we repent will determine the level to which the kingdom of God is fleshed out in our lives. That's an important statement. And repentance isn't a one-time deal. As you continue to walk with the Lord, you see things in your life that are unlike him where you need to repent again. And again. And again. It goes on all your life. So he says, repent therefore. Why therefore? Because you're in a bad state. (laughs) You're in sin and the wrath of God abides upon you. Repent therefore and be converted. This word converted here means 
to turn around. It means like a totally transformed life, like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You literally become a new creature in Christ. You are converted. You are changed, turned from the way you were going to in a totally opposite direction. From wanting to fornicate, do drugs, rob people, to I want to pray, read the Bible, and tell people about Jesus. That's how radical it can be. Understand? It's a conversion. So he says here, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you remember that time when you were converted? When you turned from your sin and believed in Christ and were radically transformed? It was a time of refreshing, wasn't it? I know for me, on the way to the church the day I got saved, all I saw was cement everywhere. I lived in Detroit. So that's all I saw. Cement, 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 cement. And I remember thinking that on the way there. And after I was radically transformed by Christ, I remember I came outside, the sun seemed literally brighter. And as we were driving home, I noticed every dandelion growing between the cracks of the cement. It was like a total time of refreshing. So, like, if that's the only thing you ever heard about my conversion experience, you'd probably be like, oh, Pastor Matt's not really ever got saved. He's just like some new age freak or something. You know what I mean? But then again, that goes back to the importance of realizing we're not talking about systematic theology here right now, are we? And neither was Luke. He was picking out points that he wanted to point out to people that were good for his audience, which were Jewish folk. Understand? So his times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. That's oddly said. Every scholar agrees it's oddly said. He's already come. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. Yeah, he's been received back into heaven. Times of restoration of all things, second advent of Christ, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This thing that happened with Jesus, yeah, God had been talking about it. Remember last week's sermon? We saw the first time it was spoken of was, what was that? Genesis chapter 3, 15? Yeah. First prophecy of Christ, way back then. And look what it says in verse 22 and 23. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Wow. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Who's the prophet that Peter's speaking of, that Moses was speaking of? It's Jesus. This is a quote out of Acts chapter 18. Turn there. Uh, Acts chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It says in verse 14, 
For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And then he says in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And here Peter is saying is, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. This is huge in their Jewish minds. That he's identifying Jesus as that prophet that Moses was speaking about was massive in their minds. Look what it says in verse 16. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. Remember, I've talked about this in the past. When they rejected God, God set up the whole, what, tabernacle thing, right? Where there's like only the high priest gets to go into the holiest of holies now. God originally wanted to meet with all of the Israelites, with all of them. And they were like, we don't want to do this anymore. And man's always like that, isn't he? He wants to put a priest between him and God. You know, they don't want to get right with God. Oh, priest, can you pray for me? Oh, minister, can you pray for me? I mean, I've heard that 18 million times. Okay? It's just common in man to want to do that. So they're like, you go meet with him, Moses. We don't want to meet with him. God sets up this whole system with the tabernacle, with the veil and everything like that. They, tabernacle wasn't good for the, good enough for these guys. They build this massive temple. That's another whole sermon. Man and his buildings and his real estate. Just enthralled with his buildings and his real estate. Drive me crazy. God was for the tabernacle. He didn't even want the house built for him. That's clear in scripture. So they make the veil not this little thing, they make it 60 feet high. And the rabbis said that it was so thick that you put 200 yoke of oxen on either end, driving in oxen's directions, couldn't tear the fabric. What happened to that veil the day Christ died? It was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Nobody did that. God did that. Showing, now you all have access to me. Why? Because that prophet Moses talked about is here. That's what Peter's saying. And it's Jesus. You all now have access to God. That in itself is a remarkable thought, right? I have access to God. And yet Christians spend an amazingly small amount of time in prayer and in communion and fellowship with the Lord. Isn't that sad? We get to meet with Him and we can always find 500 other things to do not to meet with Him. (laughs) I'm the same way. I get up in the morning and I have to force myself down on my knees. And there's times where 60 seconds into my prayer, my mind's just going, all these things I got to do. And I'm just like, yeah, help me with all that. Jump up. I've been a Christian a long time. I don't need to spend all that time down on my knees praying. That's arrogant. (laughs) And it's dumb. And yet it's so easy to do. You know what I'm saying? Too easy to do. And yet here we can meet with God directly. All those, what was it, 1,300 years? They had the veil there? It's gone now. We can meet with him directly ourselves. One mediator between us and God, the man, Christ Jesus. This is huge stuff. So Peter, when he invokes Moses here, That's huge. And you'll often see Moses being invoked by the New Testament writers because Moses was huge to the Jews and the majority of the early church was Jewish. And they would make contrast between Moses and Jesus 
Like we saw in John 1.17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. They would also make analogies between Moses and Jesus. The New Testament writers would. And that's because Moses is big to them. So when he reveals that Jesus is the prophet that Moses was talking about, understand how huge that was to them. It was big. He goes on in verse 24 and he says, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as spoken have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here Luke is doing it again, right? Remember in chapter 1, we saw that there's this inkling that this gospel is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. We saw that inkling in chapter 1. We saw that inkling last week in chapter 2, correct? Now we see this inkling again. Understand Luke's headed somewhere. He's headed to chapter 10 and 11. You know, first chapter 8, the Samaritans, they're part of this. And then you get to chapters 10, 11, two whole chapters showing the Gentiles are a part of this whole deal. Two. And then you have the whole conflict in chapter 15 regarding the Jews and the Gentiles. And the result that that first council of the church came to regarding the Gentiles. So this is another inkling when he uses um, the scripture from Genesis and says, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Turning every one of you away from your sins. Okay? So this gospel is once again seen here in chapter 3 as having an inkling of not just being for the Jews, but being for all the peoples of the earth, which, of course, that was always God's intent, was to win all the peoples of the earth unto himself. The Jews got that all messed up. And then he concludes in verse 26 with this sermon before the authorities come and break everything up. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Okay? Christ came to destroy sin. You understand that, right? He came to destroy sin. That's why it should bother you when you see the governments of men affirming sin through law. That should bother you. But he comes to destroy sin in our individual lives. You do understand that. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The first epistle of John, chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And then look what it says. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. God wants to free us from our sin. Our alcohol, our drugs, our sex, outside of marriage, our absorption with ourselves, our idolatry of self in this culture, the glorification of 
having as many possessions as possible. Every and any sin you can think of that is common to man that enslaves him. God wants to destroy that. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6. The book of Romans, I'm going to close with this. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus. And then look what he says. That the body of sin might be done away with. Christ came to destroy sin. And he destroys it within individuals first and foremost. Understand? Those changed lives have an impact on others, on society at large. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When you know Christ, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin anymore. What it does mean is that sin no longer rules over you. In other words, you will desire holiness. You will desire to do good work. You will desire to serve Christ in the earth. You won't just be given. You won't just be given to sin, thinking not much of it. It'll bother you when you do sin. You'll have to confess it to God and ask Him to help you overcome that sin. You can't just dismiss it. Understand? It doesn't rule over you anymore. You can live holy lives. We can live holy lives. Look what it says in verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin does not have dominion over us. Christ came to destroy that. Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Christ came to destroy sin, to annihilate it. I don't know about you, but it grieves me when I see people's lives ruined by sin. As a pastor, I get called to various locales. People want me to minister to a family member, a friend, things like that. And so often I walk in and you just talk to them. You look around the house, you see these people have spent a long time destroying their lives through sin. And it breaks your heart. Christ came to destroy that, to set these people free, that they be radically transformed where they actually want to live for him. And you can have the same experience. You can go to some uppity, suburbanite party and feel the death that wafts over that place. As much as you can go into the inner city with the destruction and poverty that's there, and feel the exact same death there. It hovers over men that rebel against God. There's consequences for how we live our lives. You understand that. 
So when Christ sets us free from our sin, we should live as Christian men and women. Amen? That doesn't mean you'll never sin. God forbid. Could you imagine how pompous and arrogant we would be? He has a way of keeping us utterly dependent upon Him. He is the vine. We are the branches. We can do nothing without Him. You understand? We are utterly dependent upon Him to live the Christian life. You cannot live for God without God. This is hugely important. But the predominant view that I find amongst most American Christians nowadays is a flippancy towards sin. Like almost like God expects me to sin. You know, it's like the second slogan. Their first slogan is, I expect sinners to act like sinners. And their second slogan is, God expects me to sin. I've heard that a million times since I've become a Christian. He expects me to sin. I don't think it's so much he expects us to sin as he knows we will sin. <laughs> we are what we are as creatures. And you have to be careful when you say that. When you're out on campus and you're preaching the gospel and a bunch of people, they want you. Oh, don't you sin? And if you say, yes, I sin, here's what they have in your mind, in their mind. That you're a fornicating, adulterous, drug-dealing, dope-smoking, alcoholic dog, just like they are. <laughs> That's exactly what you've just said to them. When you say, yeah, I sin, you have to say what your sin is. They don't have the same idea that you have. Because man's looking for a reason to justify his sin. That is like so innate in men who are rebellion to God. They want to justify their sin. And if you say that you sinned, they feel justified in their sin. So you have to define what you mean by that. And that's why it's important we do live holy lives. Amen? Because there's only 18 million examples for them to look at when you Google it, <laughs> you know, where Christian people fell off the turnip truck and did really evil, sick stuff. And the wicked love that. They gobble that up. They can't write enough stories about it, right? Think about that when you're tempted to sin. Those of you who are married, when you're tempted to sin, think of your spouse. Yeah, think of God. We all do that. But there's other peripheral things too. <laughs> you know, you can think about that can help you strengthen yourself so you don't give in to that. Like your witness for God, like your spouse, like your family. All those things are important. The name of Christ, the body of Christ. You have to be strong and overcome that stuff. Holiness matters. Did I mention holiness matters? It does matter and God calls it to it, calls us to it over and over and over again. I know it's not the popular sermons, but just get your strongest concordance, look up the word holy and holiness. That's pretty astounding how many sermons aren't being preached. That's like I always say about American Christianity. It's not so much what is being said as it is what's not being said. Let's stand up and close in a word of prayer.